Well, good evening, Rua Church. Uh, I'm Alexander, one of the pastors here, and I would like to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10 in your Bibles with me. Luke chapter 10, and we will be reading beginning in verse 25. And once you have found that section of text, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Well, there are some questions that nobody, really nobody needs to know the answer to. For instance, uh, What is the latest on the conspiracy theory surrounding Bigfoot? These are questions that really no one needs to know the answers to. There are some questions that a select few group of people should know the answers to, but not everyone in a broad consensus needs to. For instance, uh, how many protons are in uranium? Unless you're a nuclear physicist, that's not a question you really need to know the answer to, and your life will largely be unaffected by that kind of a question. Even knowing the answer, unless you're in that field of study, it's not really going to change much about your day-to-day. Now, there are some questions that it would be generally helpful if you knew the answer to, even if you weren't in that particular field. For example, how do you change the tire on a car? You would be generally better off if you knew how to do that, but you're not all the way lost if you don't. What about how to invest your finances wisely in, say, the modern stock market or in modern investment properties? Those might be good questions to know answers to, but uh, you can get along with your life and people have for generations without knowing the answers to those questions. There are some questions that everyone must know the answer to. And in this case, each and every one of us must have an answer to give when we are asked this question. And the question here is put forth by the scribe, or sorry, by the lawyer. And you see it there in the text when he asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Now, if you are a good Protestant, you might immediately recoil at the question because implicit in his question is an action of doing, completing something to inherit eternal life. But we'll break that down when we get there. Before that, I want to give you my my thesis on the front end. There are no good Samaritans. That's my, that's my uh, summary on the front end. There are no good Samaritans. Now, if you disagree with that, follow along and see if I can change your mind. If you agree with me, follow along so you might be reminded of this truth once again in the text. Look with me at verse 25 where we read, There is a lawyer who stood up and he put him to the test. Uh, the lawyer seeking to test Jesus asks him a question. He asks him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, it's an interesting question, 
And we might at one, one level say it's a very good question to ask Jesus, except for the fact that Luke gives us a, a qualifying interpretive statement when he tells us that the lawyer was seeking to put Jesus to the test. That's why he asked the question. So it's not as though the lawyer didn't maybe have his own answer to the question. He's, uh, if you like, testing the orthodoxy of Jesus. He's seeing, does Jesus know the answer to, uh, in theological terms, a very simple, basic question? This would almost be uh, an insult, if you like, to Jesus, because Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. Uh, He has to know the answer to this question. Uh, Everyone does, but the Jewish people go to their rabbis to get the answers for these questions. And so it's, it's quite an insult for one to ask another a simple question like this. So, uh, how would you answer that question? If, if someone came to you, let's say you're uh, reading your Bible at a coffee shop, you're getting work done, you have your Bible sitting on the side, uh, perhaps you just mention God in a conversation, someone comes up to you after that and says to you, what do you believe about eternal life? What do you believe about God? How, how is it that we are saved? People ask these kinds of questions. What would you answer if someone asked you that kind of question? How would you deal with that circumstance? Every single believer must be able to answer this question, and every single person on the face of the earth is asking this question at one layer or another. But to answer the question appropriately, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, We need to understand the context, the assumptions, and the worldview behind the question, and how our response might be heard by the other person. So consider first the example of the lawyer. What do we know about lawyers in the first century? Well, they are experts when it comes to Jewish law. These people studied and memorized the parts of your Bible that you typically try to skip in your year-long Bible reading plan. They, uh, they were immersed in what do you sacrifice? How much of it do you sacrifice? What do you tithe to atone for certain sins? How exactly does the Day of Atonement work in relation to our relationship with God, who's in and who's outside of the covenant people? They were experts in these kinds of things. So we know, and Jesus can safely assume, this man is operating from a worldview informed by at least the Torah, at least the first five books of the Old Testament. They share this in common with one another. And likely, being a lawyer in Orthodox Judaism, this man would not only know the Torah, but also know all the prophets. Jesus can assume he's an expert in the Old Testament. And so Jesus can, can know that when answering the question, when going into giving an answer. And how he frames the question gives us some indication about his assumptions on the front end. For instance, you'll notice uh, the word inherit. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's not asking, what shall I do to merit or to achieve eternal life? He's asking about inheriting eternal life which is an assumption of the Jewish people. You remember when John the Baptist preaches to the Jewish people, one of the things he has to say to them is, you, who are children of Abraham, don't boast in that. Why does he have to say that? Because the Jewish people assumed that they were the inheritors of God's kingdom. If they did nothing to disqualify themselves, they would inherit the kingdom. They were already on the track of inheritance, and as long as they stayed on that track as faithful Jews, they would indeed inherit the kingdom. And that's what he means by eternal life. He's not talking about some some spirit-enraptured state in the clouds. He's talking about Yahweh's kingdom on earth under his Messiah, where the Jews are victorious over all their enemies. There's all baked into his worldview. And Jesus knows this because he knows about their culture. He knows about their book. And you'll notice that Jesus asks him an intelligent question on the basis of all these assumptions. Verse 26, he said to him, What is written in the law? And how do you read it? Notice Jesus answers a question uh, with a question. He actually answers the question with two questions. But his answer undercuts at least part of the worldview of a lawyer. You see, one of the things that Jesus has earlier accused those religious leaders of his day of doing is conflating the traditions of man with the doctrines of God. It's one of the accusations he's given to them. So when Jesus asks the lawyer about his opinion on this question, his answer, he doesn't ask him, what do, the, what do your scribes say? What do you say? He says, what is written in the law? They have a common source of authority. They have a common uh, means of communication, a common appeal that they can make. And the lawyer and Jesus share this in common. What is written in the law? You remember 
that Jesus is accused by the scribes and Pharisees of being a denier of the law, a denier of Jewish orthodoxy. So it's actually very wise of him to put the words of the law in front of the mind of this lawyer. If I was to ask you that question, what is written in the law, how would you answer it? Part of this is informed by our evangelical understanding of how the law relates to us. You see in in scripture, we often think only of the New Testament, only of the good news, and not of all of the things that came before that to reveal to us our need of the Savior. One of the uses of the law in the Old Testament is to show us God's perfect standard of righteousness. So what is written in the law? How do you read it? This is Jesus asking the lawyer, well, what does the text say about how we inherit eternal life? And the lawyer is going to answer and summarize the law by quoting two different texts and, and, and actually adding a little bit of an interpretive layer to it. Um, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema, and he quotes from Leviticus 19, 18, and summarizes the whole law in a commonly used expression that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the Shema. And the rabbis would add, and with all your mind, just to clarify what they mean by heart. And then he would add one more layer on top of that, Leviticus 19, and your neighbor as yourself. Well, why would we summarize the whole Old Testament law in these terms? Well, partially because uh, for a religiously pious person, the first two-thirds of that statement could be legitimately faked. If you're a religiously pious person, you can claim that you indeed do love God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength, and with all your mind. But if you fail to love your neighbor as yourself, which religious people are prone to doing, uh, you would expose yourself to be short of the law. So the Jewish leaders would sandwich these two things together. You cannot claim to love God perfectly if you fail to love your neighbor perfectly. It's a simple and straightforward statement. The, the, modern, uh, the modern thinker would say yes to the second piece. And what it really means to love God well is only to love your neighbor well. This is not the case. The loving your neighbor as yourself is a part of what it means to love God well, but it is not the exclusive totality of what it means to love God well. So these are the two statements, the summary of the law. And if you, and if you think this is a, not a good summary of the law, Leviticus, Exodus, uh, Numbers, where they summarize all the teachings of the law, you'll notice you could point to how these statements apply directly to the on-the-ground prohibition that is given. Uh, think about the Ten Commandments, right? You think about the first four commandments. You shall love God with all that you've got. How? No other gods. Don't make any images. Honor your father and mother. Well, no, no, that goes to the second table of the law, which has in mind loving neighbor as self or respecting your parents. Don't uh, steal from your neighbors. Don't lust what's not yours. Don't commit adultery, right? The, even the Ten Commandments have baked into it this pattern of honoring God, honoring neighbor, loving God perfectly, loving neighbor perfectly. This is the standard of the Jewish law. This is the standard of righteousness that God poses to humanity. You might say that that seems strange. We don't like talking about works very much, but there is a covenant of works that God offers to all people. As Calvin would say, it is not that God asks us what we can do. He tells us what we ought to do to merit eternal life. And if you completed the law perfectly, if you did all these things perfectly, you indeed would merit eternal life. It's called the covenant of works. God offers this to Adam in the garden. He offers it to every Israelite past Adam. And we would say that only one was able to fulfill this covenant. But it indeed, righteousness is based on works. In this case, the works either of yourself or the works of Christ. And what is written in the law is the basis of this righteousness. Jesus, if he did not fulfill the law in its totality, would not be the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for us because he would have fallen short of God's righteousness because this is God's righteousness defined. And the lawyer asks the question, gets the question flipped on its head. And then in verse 28, Jesus simply tells him, yeah, that's it. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you'll live. Well, if you are a postmodern, you think, 
That's pretty simple. And that's because we have a very relative understanding of what does it mean to love and what does it mean to love perfectly and what does it mean to love God and what does it mean to love neighbor. We have such abstract and uh, poor understandings of what it means to love God and neighbor well. But the lawyer is not postmodern. And so he feels the weight of what Jesus has just said. He feels the pressure that has just been put on him. He feels uh, the unbearable conviction of the shortcomings that he has. And verse 29 tells us, but he desired to justify himself. So it says, uh, desiring to to justify himself, to make an excuse for himself, he, he hides under one of the terms or the definitions in the previous statement. He's a good lawyer. He's going to try to get out on technicality. And he says, well, if that's the standard, who's my neighbor? And what's, what's so interesting about this is he is, let's say, assuming in his answer, he's safe from loving God perfectly. He's done that. He's done that. He's done that. The neighbor piece, he's not so sure about. He wants to clarify that piece. And Jesus gives him this picture of the good Samaritan. The, the, the parable, as it's often recounted, is the parable of the good Samaritan. And what Jesus is going to prove in this parable is that everyone who bears the image of God is your neighbor. And he does this. I'm not going to recount the whole parable. He does this by showing him, oh well, first, uh, one of the priests. The highest, most pious, most noble, most studied person in the Jewish camp. Well, what happens? Well, a priest is going down the road, stumbles across this man, beaten half to death. What does the priest do? He offers him no help. The text does not tell us why the priest offers him no help. If you uh, have ever studied this passage before, if you've ever uh, gotten lost in commentaries, uh, there's a whole lot of people speculating about why the priest may or may not have gone to this man. Maybe he was dead. Maybe he would have made himself unclean. The text does not say, and Jesus does not care. The point is, there are some matters of the law weightier than others. A priest knows better, should know better, should know love of neighbor exceeds certain ceremonial cleanliness acts. And so a priest should have known what to do and done it. The point is, the priest has no love of neighbor, thus having no love of God, and it's exposed in this parable. What comes after that? Verse 32, a Levite. Now, a Levite is not a priest. A Levite is uh, a priest's assistant. Uh, if you like the, the priest, if, if it's a doctor, a Levite would be like a nurse. They, they work in the same field, in the same area, but one uh, assists and aids the other in their temple service. So Jesus is not condemning the priesthood, but okay, let's give it another shot. Another person, equally pious, equally holy, equally in love with God's law, equally able to study it, equally able to serve in that capacity. A Levite, surely he'll be able to help. Levite passes him by, same as the priest. He does the exact same thing. He came to the place, he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And then a Samaritan comes, and a Samaritan has journeyed a long way. He's actually not really even traveling between Jerusalem and Jericho. He's kind of going on that path to go back home. He's got a longer journey. He's got all the more reason not to stop. It's a Jewish person who's been beaten, who the Samaritans and the Jews, they don't get along very well. But what does the Samaritan do? He takes the man. He goes out of his way. The text actually says he, he came to where the man was. He saw him. He had compassion. And he went to him, verse 34. He went to him. And he bound up his wounds. And if the text tells us, he, he nurses him, he cares for him, he takes him to an innkeeper, and he says, whatever outstanding debt is there, I will pay it. Take care of this man, nurse him back to health. And then Jesus poses the question to the lawyer. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer's asking simple questions. Jesus is also asking simple questions. Now, why does Jesus give this example? Well, because one of the rabbinical interpretations of the statement neighbor is that a neighbor is a fellow Jew. A neighbor is a a Jewish person. He's, He's of your bloodline. He's your neighbor. And Jesus says this is a misunderstanding of the law. And he does that by exposing a Samaritan who acts as a neighbor to a Jew. And he says, who's the more neighborly one? The Jews to the Jews or this Samaritan to a Jew. The point is, neighborliness is demanded to the whole human race in obedience to God. 
Now, why is that the case? Uh, a religious person to this point might be, uh, a religious Jew, I should say, might be recoiling from this and, and, and questioning it. A first century Jew. But uh, a, a postmodern person who, who loves the application of this text might be looking at it and saying, yes, and we should treat one another with dignity and respect. Uh, but there's no foundation for why. Scripture offers a foundation for why. Why do we treat others with dignity and respect, even if they're not part of our family, part of our creed? Why do we do that? Genesis tells us because every single person is an image bearer of God. That's the foundation for why we treat one another well. If you hold any other, any other worldview that, that can't explain why you treat humans with dignity and respect, uh, you have no justification for why. You might rejoice in the fact that it's happening and that it should happen, but there is no justification for why. From an evolutionary standpoint, you're actually, in many circumstances, advantageous if you deny the human dignity of certain groups if they're not part of the group that's in your best interest. And think about Genghis Khan and his empire, which expanded through much of the world. Well, he didn't do that by being particularly neighborly to the empires he conquered. But it was evolutionary advantageous. He, he, he made a name for himself. He created a legacy. So uh, the evolutionary standpoint has no good reason why we ought to treat one another with dignity and respect. There's no morality there. The Christian worldview says everyone bears God's image. Everyone does. So you must treat them as neighbor. Even if they're not part of your tribe, part of your family, one of your friends, you have to treat them as neighbor. That's the true teaching of this text. The text, as was originally quoted in, from Leviticus, that kind of hybrid quotation, uh, you should love your neighbor as yourself, this is what it means. You love every human as yourself. That's exactly what this, the lawyer was trying to get around in his definition. He was trying to get away from the definition of loving everyone. He was trying to define it narrowly as loving uh, maybe just other pious Jews who he would get along fine with. Not that he would love them perfectly, but maybe in his own self-deception he could do so. But Jesus notices the sore spot of the lawyer, the, the means by which he seeks escape from the condemnation of the law. And Jesus says, oh, don't worry about that, you're, you're doing okay. No. He presses the painful part. He pushes on it. He actually tells a whole parable about it and then concludes, verse 37, with the same thing he said in verse 28 before he told the parable. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Verse 37, you go and do likewise. Now, Jesus is not making, he, he, is, he has left the lawyer with no means of escape from God's law. What is God's law? What does the lawyer know about God's law? Here is God's perfect standard of righteousness. It's given to us in the text. Everyone has access to it. Jews have access to it. Love your Lord with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. What about, I'm not so sure I like the neighbor part. What, can I define it differently? Jesus says no. How God defines it is how it's defined. Because how God defines righteousness is how it's defined. Now, what can we learn from this text? Well, uh, it would be a very short-sighted mistake for us to look and with, uh, with uh, let's say, 21st century eyes, look at this text and say, yes, and this lawyer should love people better. What a narrow-minded fool uh, for thinking only Jews deserve love, and obviously God is bigger than that. That would be to miss the point. The point of the, of the interaction is to answer the question that the lawyer asks. The lawyer asks the question, verse 25, it's right there in the text. What shall I do to merit or inherit eternal life? What must I do? And what Jesus tells him is essentially, obey God's law perfectly. No excuses. No deviations from that standard. No reinterpretation of the text to make it fit with your own perception of how you're doing. Well, this is a rather uh, uncomfortable place to be. If you're a lawyer and you're aware of the, the weightiness with which you fall short of all these things. And that's what the text is designed to do, to tell you and me, reflect yourself in your own heart about how you square up to this standard. It may be that like the lawyer, uh, your particular love of neighbor, love of fellow human is well short of God's standard. And if that case, you're being pressed at the same point that the lawyer is being pressed. But the text could also press us in a myriad of different ways, loving God with all our heart, 
loving him with all our soul, loving him with all our strength, loving him with all our mind. We don't even love God with all of our free time. How could we do all these other things? We don't love him with perfect obedience, meditating on his word constantly. Uh, we don't love him with all of our uh, labor submitted to him. Even a, even a good, pious Christian doesn't do that well. So what hope then is there? Well, the, the thing that the lawyer never gets is to understand the mercies of God. Why doesn't he get to the good news of the gospel? Well, because he's never at any point in time yet convinced of his shortcomings and need of that good news. When Jesus shares the gospel with, with this lawyer, he doesn't skip to the, don't feel so guilty for your sin, I'm going to die and, and pay for your sins. Don't feel so guilty. Which I think is often how we, we skip to the good part of the gospel and we, we don't let the conviction of sin sit. But Jesus is comfortable to let this lawyer leave his presence and Luke is comfortable to end his telling of the text right here. No offer of salvation. Why? No conviction of guilt. Before one can come before God honestly, before one can come God with receiving God's mercy and his forgiveness, what must you do? Well, Sermon on the Mount tells us we, uh, we must be poor and humble. Uh, we must come with no righteousness of our own. We must, we must not insist on our own righteousness. Then, throw yourselves upon the mercy of God. But the lawyer doesn't think he needs the mercy of God. He thinks he's fitting and completing the definition of neighborliness. I think this is something we do as well. In our culture, there's so many people who we try to convince that the guilt that they feel from their sin shouldn't be so heavy upon their conscience. And we think that that's good news, but it's not good news. Because what people really need to hear is the guilt that you feel is every bit as bad as you think and probably more, but there's a solution and alleviation for that guilt. There's a solution to the problem, which the lawyer never gets to hear. You can imagine him walking away from Jesus in this interaction when Jesus says, go and do likewise. And him, you know, saying a handful of things that could assuage his guilty conscience. He could walk away and say, well, that's not what my scribe teacher taught me growing up in, in rabbinical school. That's not my interpretation of, of this text. Well, none of those excuses will actually deal with the guilt that the lawyer feels. Why do you think he asked this question in the first place? Partially to trap Jesus, but why do you think he picks this question to talk to Jesus about? Jesus is famous for interacting with sinners and people who fall well outside of the law by their own admission. And so when the lawyer goes to Jesus and asks him about the law and inheriting eternal life, what's he expecting to hear? Well, if Jesus is this kind of liberal theologian that the lawyer thinks he is, and maybe he'll hear, don't worry about the law, you love God pretty well, you'll be good to go. Jesus presses him where it hurts until he would cry out mercy at which point in time he would receive mercy. What happens uh, when sinners go to Jesus and they say, I have no righteousness of my own. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. What happens? Every time that happens in the gospel, Jesus pardons sin, forgives iniquity, says go and sin no more. But you don't get to that unless you, you get through the guilt which weighs upon the conscience. The conviction of the Holy Spirit at work in someone's life to, to make them feel the guilt of sin in their heart is not something that we should be trying to medicate or remedy. In many ways, it's actually the only means by which that will go away is by bringing someone to the utter end of themselves and bringing them on their knees before God saying, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. As Isaiah says, Isaiah 6, woe to me, I am undone. So I concluded at the beginning that there are in fact no good Samaritans. Because in, this, in, this, uh, in our cultural use of this text, anyone who cleans up uh, the scraps at a restaurant table so the waiter or the waitress doesn't have to is a good Samaritan. Uh, if you give money to someone who dropped it on the street and you give it back to them, you're a good Samaritan. I mean, we have so polluted the weight of this text. There are the, what is the conclusion? There are no good Samaritans. Samaritans don't treat Jews like this. Jews don't treat Samaritans like this. Jews don't even treat Jews like this. The conclusion is no one hits this standard. That's what you should feel. If you were a first century Jew, that's what you would feel. You'd go, I've never heard of a Samaritan like this. That's because they don't exist. 
There are no Samaritans like this. Does that mean the standard of God's righteousness should consend to human imperfection? Maybe. If you're a postmodern, that's what you would say. And we all have this little postmodern kicking around inside of us because think about when you drive on the road. You're driving in the left lane. You're driving with the speed of traffic, which is a translation for you're driving over the posted speed limit. Driving, let's say, 10, 15 miles an hour over the speed limit, but you're matching everyone else around you, and someone comes flying behind you and is, and is right on your tail going, you don't know how fast. And you get upset at them. You're like, I'm, what are you doing? But you're in violation of the law, too. You're all in violation. Everyone's guilty, and just because he's more guilty than you, you think you have some kind of moral superiority over him. And then, worst of all, if, if a police officer would dare to pull you over, you would, you would just have every indication. Everyone around me was going fast. What are you pulling me over for? We're all like that. We all have this little relativistic, postmodern view of ourselves in mind where we justify ourselves by some relative standard of good. And that's what we do with this text. Some relative definition of good Samaritan qualifies us as loving neighbor well enough to meet the standard of God's law. That's just not what this text is about. The text tells us to feel the pressure of the requirement of the law so that we might go to the one who can have mercy on us. When you look at God's standard, you might think to yourself that you do love other people well. But you might fall well short of loving God well. And at the very least, every single person, no matter where you violate the law, you have something that the law is going to press on in your life. Perhaps it's your uh, struggle with a certain category of sin. And every time you hear God's law preached, you feel a soreness in one particular location. And maybe that's your conscience bearing witness to you that you need repentance and you need to confess the sin before God so he might forgive you. The worst thing that could happen to you in that situation is someone who touts to speak on behalf of God coming alongside you and telling you don't feel so bad about that thing. Lowering the standard. As though God is not all that merciful. But this is what we are tempted to do if we go to someone who wants to kick and recoil at certain parts of the law and we tell them things like, well, you know, the law was binding in the Old Testament but not so much in the New. We say all kinds of stuff which we have no justification for saying. Because for everyone who's apart from Christ, they are under the law. Everyone outside of Christ is under the, uh, under the law of God. We are, by nature, going to fall short of this law. You don't believe me. Uh, James actually says it. He says that we, we, uh, we are all sinners by that standard. Even if you violate it at one point, you're guilty of the whole law. That doesn't mean you've committed every single sin enumerated under the law. The point is, you're guilty of all the weight of the law. God's standard is a perfect standard. Well, if you're one law of the 316 short of perfection, it's not a perfect score short of God's righteousness. So this is a standard that we could say has been fairly given. It has been justly laid out for humanity. And God says, do this and you will live. The conclusion we should not come to is that we can do this and then we should do this and then we will live. The conclusion we should come to is who can do this? We can't do this. God, you would be just in punishing us have mercy on us so that we may live. That would be the appropriate gospel logic through this text. Well, the whole rest of the the Luke's gospel testifies to the truth that if you fall short of the law and you throw yourselves upon the mercy of Christ, he will hold you fast. He will take his sin upon you. And as we're going to find out in in actually a bunch of chapters, (laughs) he deals with our sin in its totality He resurrects in power. He turns around and offers that power to us. And then he says, and I'm coming back to give you eternal life. And it's not because you're any better than you were when I started with you. It's because I have gone about the work of justifying you and you have entrusted yourself to the mercy of God, which is manifested in me. Now, if you're an Old Testament saint, you don't have that whole complete picture of Jesus, but every Old Testament saint knows about the merciful God. Every Old Testament saint knows this. So when David is writing Psalm 51 about his massive iniquity that he's committed, what does he conclude? Well, you know, I I kind of followed the law 
little bit, and if I did a sacrifice, I'll be good to go. It's not his conclusion. His conclusion is, Lord, would you have mercy upon me for my sin? David knows the mercy of God. He loves the mercy of God. He throws himself upon the mercy of God. And in many ways, he has entrusted himself to the salvation of Jesus because Jesus is the manifestation of the mercy of God. When Jesus comes in the New Testament, he narrows and clarifies what it means to trust God for salvation, but he doesn't add a clause that says, if you fell short of this, for 2,000 years, Israelites were dying in their sin, but now you can have mercy from God. That's not what's happening in the text. It's a just requirement, but God has always been merciful to his people. It's only smart theologians who will go about convincing people that they're actually not so bad off as they think they were. This is true in America. This is true in the first century in Jerusalem. These lawyers are convincing people around them that the lawyers are fulfilling the requirements of the law, that the Pharisees are fulfilling the requirements of the law, that everyone is fulfilling the requirements of the law, except you, sinner, but you're going to hell. Uh, Jesus is saying, uh, if you want to inherit eternal life, you have to hit your own standard perfectly, and you know that you're not. And he doesn't give the lawyer any outs. He doesn't allow him to redefine any of the terms. Same standard for everybody, and the same conclusion for everyone. Throw yourself upon God's mercy. Now this is the gospel as applied to a lawyer in Jerusalem circa 50 AD, something like that. This is that cultural context, right? Somewhere in the first century, this is happening, this is unfolding. Well, the gospel hasn't changed, the good news hasn't changed. So what would this look like 2,000 years later Let's say you are talking to someone and they ask you that question I post you on the front end. What could you do to inherit eternal life? Well, you would have to pose a similar standard to them. If you love God perfectly, if you loved your neighbor perfectly, you could inherit eternal life. What are the problems we bump into? Whereas Jesus shared a worldview with the lawyers he's sharing the gospel with here, we don't share a worldview with many of the people we interact with. There are so many things we would even need to define in the question. First, verse 25, look at it. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Implying that there is such a thing as eternal life. There are so many people deceived into thinking this life and this life only is all that there is. That is the perfect way to deceive someone into not thinking about eternal life. And Christians, we get embarrassed about eternal life because as soon as you start talking about the good side of eternal life, you have to start talking about the bad side of eternal life. And there's even Christians who would say, don't worry about this life. Generally try to act nicely towards God and he's going to redeem anyone anyway. So don't worry about any kind of condemnation. Well, if that was the case, why wouldn't Jesus have told the lawyer that good news? Why wouldn't he have said, well, if you're loving God well enough, you're okay. He doesn't say any of that. He leaves him with an arrow in his back, walking away, feeling the guilt and the weight. So we have no license to come, come away with some creative interpretation of this text. We, we don't, we're not even the children of Abraham, unless we're a, of Jewish offspring, to even assume an inheritance of whatever eternal life that there is. We're outside of the law, apart from it. And, and, and most of all, there's this, there's this worldview assumption that when we talk about the good news of the gospel, that we're on the same page with everyone across the board about what we even mean when we say the good news of the gospel. As though the good news doesn't entail first feeling all of the weight of guilt and shame with the law before you can feel the redemption of it. Because there's just as many orthodox believers who themselves have felt the guilt and the weight of sin, who have confessed God as Lord, who have felt the mercy of that, who will then become persuaded at some point in their life to not want anyone else to go through the experience of guilt and shame. And so then we start modifying and watering down the requirements of the law so that people don't feel so guilty about all the, all the sin that they're committing. And this is the church in the year 2022. We are a church that likes to redefine God's morality in postmodern terms, a church that likes to assuage people that their guilt shouldn't really be felt so guiltily. They're really on the inside a great person. And if you were to ask your average evangelical Christian what What is your standard before a holy God? They would say, I'm generally good. God will probably accept me. That is not good news for the church because that is not even close to the gospel. Well, in the face of all these worldviews, I think the number one threat is the thing that Jesus exemplifies for us in the passage, which is that he stays on target 
when dealing with the lawyer's sin. If you talk to someone about God's standard for righteousness, no sooner will you hit the sore spot than you will get into someone who is all of a sudden a PhD in hermeneutics or Old Testament theology. Because they will start to bring up texts that what might seem to disprove your point, they're starting to, to, to debate over here and over here, and they're going all over the place, away from where you just pressed, that really hurt. What does Jesus do? He stays right on target, right on the sin, right on what needs to be felt, right on what needs to break for the sinner to come on his knees before God. And this is, is where I think we are most squeamish as a church. Because we live in a culture that tolerates niceness and, and kindness over, over pressing in and concluding with Jesus, you must do this or else you, you are short of my standard. We don't like preaching that kind of stuff. And a, a case example, it's not the only example, but a case example of this is around the topic, generally speaking, of human sexuality. Where the church is on the far end of the spectrum saying, well, you know, that sin, you know, it's, it's not quite in line with God's morality, but it's not so bad. You know, it's not, it's not let's talk about other things. I've even heard uh, some pastors go as far as saying, well, uh, homosexuality won't send you to hell because being heterosexual doesn't send you to heaven. Well, yes, it's true. Heterosexuality doesn't send you to heaven, but homosexuality is a far cry from God's law. And the church gets squeamish on issues like this because what we don't want to have happen is people who have embraced that sin or have been taught by the culture to embrace that sin. We don't want them to think less of us. We don't want them to feel guilty from us because why? Well, then they'll avoid us. No, no, no. That is when they will be most primed to feel the conviction of sin so that they might experience the redemption of Christ. You can't experience mercy without conviction. You can't even begin to seek mercy until you feel guilt. So why is it that the church wants to tell so many people who are crying out for God to have mercy on them that they're not so guilty and they shouldn't worry about that so much? That is a shortfall that we have as a church. But there, there are so many other lanes in which that could, that could play out. We want to commonly identify with, with anyone who remotely wants to claim the name of Jesus, regardless how they define Jesus. And if you've ever talked to someone who's part of some, some cult group or some offshoot of Christianity that doesn't follow anything like what the Bible teaches about Jesus or God or sin or anything like that, they will try to conclude with you and them being on the same page. Why? So that they don't have to feel any kind of weight, any kind of burden, any kind of guilt of being on a different page from you. And your temptation would be for the sake of peace, for the sake of ending the conversation to let them go but I would encourage you not to do that. Because before that person feels the weight of their own requirements, they won't start to look for the mercy of God. If you consider the doctrine of almost any, any heterodox church outside of Orthodox Christianity, it concludes to something like, love God as much as you can and he'll have mercy on you. The problem is, as we've just discussed here in this parable, no one loves God as much as they can. How do we know? No one loves neighbor as much as they can. How do we know? Look at someone's life. And even if someone would, would love their neighbor relatively better than anyone else in, let's say, the, the, uh, the modern world, that doesn't mean they love their neighbor perfectly because maybe they're loving their neighbor for some kind of nefarious motivation to promote their product or promote their business or promote their image. Nowhere do we see people giving more to charity and doing more charitable things than once they've already established wealth and security for themselves and their own future. And then they'll start giving as much money away as they can. Why? Because it's not really a risk. It's not really a risk that they're taking. Well, how are you supposed to love your neighbor? Jesus' law, love your neighbor as yourself. So you're telling me you love your neighbor as yourself when you have your own future secure, your own children's future secure, and then you start shooting money off all over the world so that people can be fed? I'm not saying those are bad things. All I'm saying is that's some kind of motivation that falls sub God's standard of loving neighbor. And so in all these ways, the world falls short, we fall short, everyone falls short, but one man doesn't fall short, and he's the one who the lawyer's talking to. When Jesus faces temptation, 
He does not bow the knee to temptation. But more than that, we would call, we would call his resistance of temptation one aspect of his obedience. But another aspect of his obedience is not the fact that he just doesn't actively sin, but also the fact that he perfectly goes out of his way to complete God's law in every way possible. How so? Well, you'll catch Jesus praying in his free time. You'll catch him healing people in his free time. You'll catch him studying God's word in his free time. You'll catch him preaching God's gospel in his free time. Jesus is perfectly following God's law in every way, shape, and form. He communes with God perfectly. He has no sin which could impede that kind of interaction. And then he goes to Calvary and turns around and offers that same kind of union, same kind of fellowship, same righteousness imputed to you and to me. And that is actually good news. Because unlike what the lawyer might try to do in justifying himself, it's a lot easier to just throw away the whole hope that you have in your own righteousness and trust in Christ's righteousness. It comes at the cost of your own ego and your own boasting. For who has any room for boasting apart from Christ? But this is where humans struggle the most. And whereas some might have been offended earlier when I spoke about Christ's morality and God's law, uh, the, the more religious of us, the more pious of us would be offended at this point. Where I insist that no matter how much you read your Bible, no matter how much you pray, no matter how much Sabbath observance, no matter how much uh, righteous obedience to God's law you follow, God doesn't love you any more or any less for doing any of those things. It's only Christ and his righteousness that merits God's love for us. Our justification, which talks about how God sees us, is one of being enclosed in Christ's righteousness, which means Christ's righteousness is the cloak, veil, screen, however you want to call it, through which God sees us. He sees nothing else apart from Christ's righteousness, which means you on your sanctification journey, stumbling in sin, wallowing in, in self-pity, and generally falling short of all the things you know you should do and have the Holy Spirit to do, which you still don't do, doesn't affect how God sees you because that has already been dealt with. And God doesn't wait until you're perfectly righteous before he declares you righteous because that would presume that he really needs to wait. He can clothe you in his righteousness. He can declare you righteousness. And he can perfectly glorify you one day. And this is what the gospel offers to us. Lest you be tempted to begin to trust in your own obedience as a means of boasting, lest you begin to uh, look at your own sinfulness as a means of uh, self-shame and self-pity, all of these truths, the gospel corrects it and points us right back to where our focus should be, on the one who was perfect. You notice when Jesus asked this question of the, of the lawyer, and, and when the lawyer uh, re responds, Jesus is not at all uncomfortable with the answer, do this and you will live. Because Jesus has no guilt. The lawyer has guilt. The lawyer is uncomfortable. It's exposing his sin. When you feel discomfort from God's law, conviction of sin, don't try to assuage that conviction. Rather, throw yourselves on your knees before God, who is merciful, and as soon as you confess your sin, he will forgive your sin. That's what scripture tells us about God. Why? Well, because Jesus, the one who's in perfect communion with the Father, mediates on our behalf between us and God. So that when you confess sin and you fall short of perfect confession, you know, you don't quite describe your sin in as much guilt and gravity as it really deserved. Jesus is mediating. When you are not aware of certain sins, which you later become convinced of in your own life, Jesus was mediating that sin the whole time. His perfect mediation, his perfect salvation, his perfect promise to come back and redeem us unto himself is the hope that we have. You'll notice none of those things depend on us or how we're doing. That doesn't mean we don't pursue righteousness or obedience under God's law, because if you love God, you will love his law. But we don't begin to deceive ourselves and trust in our own righteousness as though that will save us. So what do we say? Just because there are no good Samaritans, 
Well, that doesn't mean there's not a good God. Because the very fact that there are no good Samaritans and God still offers salvation is proof positive that there is a good God. Not only a good God, but a holy God, a perfect God, a God who must do it of his own accord, lest it be dependent on man who will fall short. And so the absence of any good Samaritans is actually very good news because it underlines and, and echoes and points us back to the one truth which we do need to be reminded of is the goodness of God, which he doesn't keep to himself, but by means of his son and by the distribution of his spirit, he gives to all who would believe on him, confess his name, and be one with his son, Christ Jesus. And that is the hope that you and I have when we consider our position before a holy God. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we are well short of what you demand. But Lord, I pray that that faltering, that failing, would drive us back to the place where we most need to be, namely in your presence. That we would learn to love you, not just for what you require, but how you fulfill the very things you require. Not just for how you have loved some people as recorded in scripture, but Lord, how you have loved us. May the joy of our heart sing about your mercies, which are new every morning, pointing us to who you are, reminding us of your truth, and causing us to grow in our affection for you. Lord, I pray that you would not allow us to skirt around our guilt and get away from it. But Lord, with a peace that surpasses all understanding, would you, by means of your son and your pardon, forgive us of our sins as we confess them. And would you drive us to our knees so that we may be more ready and more honest as we do that. We pray as we continue now in this time of worship, that you will cause our hearts to lift up to you, to magnify your name, and to declare your name to be the name over which every name should sing. We thank you for all that you are. Amen.